Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke 1, 46 through 56. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. So here we are uh, in Luke 1, 46 through uh, 56, Mary's Magnificat, Mary's song. Now, just a little background here. Just think about where Mary is living in Nazareth. It's a small town. She's probably in poverty. She's probably 13 or 14 years old. The angels come to her and said, you know, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary is going to give birth to the Savior. I mean, this staggering announcement of Gabriel coming to her. You talk, talk about your best Christmas ever. I mean, Mary, who had grown up in the temple, grown up in the synagogue, who knew the stories, knew the promises of God's faithfulness. Wow. And just to watch how Mary responds when she begins to realize what God has promised it to do will be fulfilled in her and then notice a key thing here, which we kind of are not including here, but most of you know the story, that God gave Mary somebody to really talk to about all this. I mean, he had met her, he sent an angel, wow, but he gave her Elizabeth. Uh, what a beautiful picture here. And wherever God is working, let me tell you this, wherever God is working, he's always going to put somebody in your world, your sphere, where he or she is going to be able to listen to you and speak into your life. Um, God will maybe bring people you've never met before, or you'll be reconnected with friends, and you'll be with friends, and they will say a word to you that you'll know that this is God speaking to me to, uh, through this friend. I can tell you lots of stories about how God has revealed himself to me through a friend or my, even my brother Steve saying something to me, speaking to me in a way I knew God was talking to me through my friend. And Elizabeth had a friend. I mean, Mary had a friend and Elizabeth. They spent three months together hanging out before we get to this point. But notice what Elizabeth says about Mary. Now, one of the great things, um, i got to be careful here because I'm so excited about all this. We might be here a long time today. So, uh, but not to worry. Um, so, um, you know, is that Mary is hanging out with Elizabeth. I'm sure she's experiencing a lot of things. A lot of things are disruptive or like, why and all this? But Elizabeth is blessing her. Um, one of the great privileges we have as a church is to bless one another, to say blessings over one another. And listen to what happens in verse 45 before we get to Mary's song, where um, Elizabeth says, and blessed is she who believed 
that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary believed that what God had spoken, he would fulfill. Now, some of you know this, some of you, this is new to you, or you're not sure how to connect the dots at this point, but God has spoken a word over each one of you. He has a word for each one of you that he wants to fulfill. The question is, will you be like, uh, you know, Zechariah and doubt it and not be sure because you've been waiting a long time for it to happen, but now that you're hearing it, you're just not sure. Come on, Clyde, all this Christmas stuff, best Christmas ever. Are you Joel Oystein or what? You know, your best life ever, you know, right now? Is this some kind of prosperity gospel? Who, who got you in here? When is the new pastor coming? You know, and you're just going, ah, I'm like, you know, I don't want to hear this. This is not for me. Um, really? Uh, I want you to listen to what, how Mary responds, though. But I want you to hear the blessing uh, of what Mary saw, what God had said he would fulfill. And what he wants to fulfill is what Mary sings about here today. So, um, I had a great experience this past week. Um, and it was a gift from God. So, before my mother died, she died a year ago. Um, uh, she passed away. My mom and I uh, had a very difficult relationship, but as the years went by, the relationship was repaired, and actually at the point of her death, I got to talk to her right before she died. It was really sweet. Um, it was just a kindness from God because we just did not get along at all. We had a very difficult relationship. But my mom told me that I needed to go to the archives of North Carolina Museum. Now, it's in Raleigh. If you could ever go and you have an interest in history, you can go there online and look up a lot of stuff about the history of North Carolina and what's going on. But she says, in the archives is a scrapbook of your great uncle Joe, who died in World War I at 18 years old. And the scrapbook was put together by my uh, his uh, aunt, who raised him, and again, there's a lot of story going on here, but uh, you can imagine as a 17-year-old growing up in Kinston, North Carolina, you feel the call, you join the Army, you go to Texas, the next thing you know, you're in France, and you're in one of the first battles that it was ever fought in France. Now, Joe was the oldest of three children, so there's Joe, there's Edith, and then there's my grandfather, Lee. I'm named for both my grandfathers, my dad's dad, Clyde, my mother's dad, Lee. So I'm named for Lee, so Lee's the youngest. And here's a little bit about their story real quick. So <coughs> Lee's father and mother start off in Kinston. Lee's mother got really sick with tuberculosis. So back then, one of the ways you help somebody with tuberculosis is you move to the desert. Okay, you went to a dry climate. <clears throat> so uh, Lee's father took uh, his mother and they moved to Texas, El Paso, and it was there that Lee's mother would die. She didn't survive tuberculosis. Lee's father meets a woman who is Hispanic and they fall in love. And there's lots of story within this story, but basically the woman that uh, Lee's father marries says, I will be married to you, but I will not raise your children. I will not raise your children. Right at that point, Lee's dad had to make a choice. Would he keep his kids or give them up? 
and he chose to give them up. He gave up Joe, Edith, and Lee, he actually put them in an orphanage. So you can imagine a little boy, Lee, you know, uh, he's lost his mother, now he's lost his father. Fortunately, his aunt who lived in Kinston reached out to Joe Sr. and said, Joe, what are you doing? I will take your kids, I will raise them. So you can imagine the three kids back in probably 1912, 1911, get on a train from Texas and come all the way back to Kinston where Lucy, their aunt, raises them. Now Lucy loved all of them very well, but she really loved Joe. So this scrapbook is full of letters that Joe and Lucy wrote back and forth to each other. Um, and it's uh, about their relationship, but there are pictures of Joe in uniform. There's pictures of once he was, he was killed in the, one of the first battles. Um, he died there, and it's uh, a VFW center is named after Joe Roundtree in Kinston, and it's all this stuff. But the thing that really grabbed me was reading these letters. Now, so I get to a letter, and here's a letter that Joe wrote to Lee, my grandfather. Um, and basically, here's the gist of the letter. Joe is thanking Lee for a Christmas present that Lee gave him, and it went something like this. He says, Dear Joe, oh boy. I mean, dear Lee, oh boy. Uh, he says, uh, Thank you for taking your Christmas money, and I know you didn't have much, but you took all your Christmas money and bought me a flashlight. Thank you so much. And so while I'm reading that, I'm getting all choked up because I realize Joe got a Christmas present of a flashlight because in the trenches in France, there was no light at night. <laughs> what a gift. You know, what a gift that uh, uh, Lee gave to his brother who had it maybe, I don't know for how long before he was killed. But in this letter, he's talking about Lee and his love for him and thanking him for that Christmas gift, this act of kindness, this act of brotherly love. So after that, I just went away. I was, I mean, I was sort of, I was kind of, I was undone by it, but I was just thinking about what was it like for my grandfather Lee to lose his mother, lose his father, and then lose his brother? And yet this gift at Christmas time really brought me into what this story is all about because Mary uh, is talking about the one who would come to redeem the brokenness of our stories and our lives. And I want you to see three things here. What Mary does is she talks about a magnified soul, okay? She talks about a mighty savior, and then she talks about a merciful story. So she talks about a magnified soul. Now, one of the beauties of the gospel is whenever Jesus is working in someone's life or in a church like North Cross, here's what happens is Jesus gets magnified. He gets really wonderful and amazing so that people say, hey, have you heard about what God's doing in this person's life? Or have you seen what God's doing in this church? Jesus all of a sudden gets put on the big screen and he looks so amazingly attractive. He's magnified because what Mary is saying here, she's saying basically this, my soul magnifies the Lord. Uh, on Friday morning in Winston-Salem where I live, for those of you visiting, I'm the interim pastor here and I live in Winston and kind of commute back and forth and I'm part-time here, but um, 
I'm part of a movement of men called New Canaan Society. Uh, it started in 1996 in New Canaan, Connecticut. And it's basically men gathering together to tell God's stories. For those of you who know Young Life, it's kind of like Young Life for old men. Um, and so, um, but to tell God's stories of where they see God working um, and how God has worked in their life. And so men tell stories. So every Friday morning at the River Birch Lodge, Mark's eating there um, in Winston-Salem, 7 a.m., there's storytelling of telling stories of where People have seen God really work. This past um, uh, Friday morning, I showed up, and there was a guy there named Bo Brookby, and he is legendary in Winston-Salem because of his impact on children in Winston-Salem. There's so many people who are, were seventh and eighth graders, and they were in his communicants class, um, and he loved them and took them through a very loving uh, process of learning how to become a member of the church. But there's more stories that Bo could tell, which he told on um, Friday morning. And so what I heard Bo doing, though, was he was magnifying the Lord by so magnifying. I want to tell you what God has done to fulfill his promises to me. And here's what I want to ask you. How does God want to magnify himself? And again, Valerie and I were talking about this. Valerie, my wife, is a seamstress. And she'll put on these glasses that are actually magnifying glasses. And Valerie's a very good seamstress, but as all of you know, you gotta look at fine detail, and you gotta look at how the threads go together and what you're doing. And she just made this cutest thing for our, well, I'm not gonna go there, but I'm gonna go there. Uh, is this thing for our granddaughter, Luca, where it's a green sweatshirt with a big Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer applique on the sweatshirt. And our granddaughter, Luca, when she gets it, she's lose her mind because she loves this stuff. Anyway, um, Valerie's just talking to me about when she wears those magnifying glasses, how she can see things she wouldn't see without them. You see, when I am magnifying Jesus for you, you get to see things you're missing or wouldn't see, but because God is magnifying himself in my story, all of a sudden, things that are details or things you've missed or things you need to see, Mary is saying, I'm seeing it. And I want, us, I want you to see it. And so Bo Brookby does it, and everybody does it. But here's the thing I want you to see is, first of all, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now, some of you have thought about it, some of you have not. So I want to encourage you though, to learn more about it. You have a soul that is so valuable to God. What is a soul? Uh, when we talk about that, it is well with my soul or soul food or soul train or, you know, we talk soul sister, soul brother. What is a soul? It is the deepest part of you. It is the whole person. So when we talk about being wholehearted, when soulful, we mean that everything is integrated. You do have a mind, a body, a heart, and a will, but all that encapsulated is your soul. So what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Or we love to sing that hymn, It is well with my soul. My sin was not nailed in part, but in the whole to the cross. And now it is well with my soul, with everything about me. So uh, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, this might help you sort of get into this conversation about the soul. Douglas Coupland, who's the one who coined the phrase Gen X, here's what he says. I don't deserve a soul, but I have one. 
I know because it hurts. I know because it hurts. Um, we think about a soul. What does it feel like to have a soul? Here's the way C.S. Lewis talks about it. If you have a soul, you feel and experience the disconnect between this world and heaven. You feel the disintegration. You feel it. It hurts. But C.S. Lewis talks about it this way. Most of you, if I'd say, do you remember the first time you were homesick and you felt homesick? Uh, you went away to camp, you traveled with other people, and you were away from your family for an extended period of time, or you served in the Army or the Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, and you were homesick. Here's how you know you have a soul. <laughs> you feel homesick. You know there's more. You know there's something missing. You know there's something out of alignment inside of you. But watch what Mary does, because she's talking about what is it that sort of sustains you and helps you when you feel that hurt? My soul magnifies the one who has come to meet me in my hurt, to meet me in my pain, my loss, my fears, my doubts, so that what I begin to realize is that Jesus is equal He's more than equal to the need that I have. So here's a gift I want to give all of you this Christmas, and it's this. this is, here's my ornament you can put on your Christmas tree metaphorically. His grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. No matter what you're going through, whatever, is think about this gift. His grace is sufficient. So I, I've been preaching for a long time. I've been a pastor over 40 years, so here's one of my favorite uh, preaching experiences. Uh, I was preaching in a church, and uh, my little sort of rhetorical question was, I would get right, I would set things up, line things up, and I'd go, is grace enough? You know, and so I, that was my little question, my little hook that I was throwing out there. And of course, you know, people in a nice, very polite white church like ours, you know, Okay, I'm thinking about that, but they're not going to say that you do anything. That Sunday, there happened to be an African-American pastor sitting on the very back row. Somebody invited him, and he's watching me, and he's hearing me say, is grace enough? And you know how sometimes, you know, like I, my dog Moby, I'll say something to him, and he kind of cocks his head like, what did you just say? You know, or whatever. So this African-American pastor is kind of like, I can see he's tilting his head. And uh, listening to that question, about the fourth time I asked it, he stood up and said, it's more than enough. His grace is more than enough. Not only is it sufficient, everything that represents who you are in your soul, his grace is more than enough. And it's sufficient for your greatest need, your greatest challenge, your greatest problem. And so when Mary just launches right here, Notice how, I'm going to read it again, my soul magnifies the Lord. I want to tell you how sufficient his grace is. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He has looked upon me. Now Mary grew up in poverty. Nazareth is a small town, a military town. She's a nobody. She is way out there, away from anything significant that's going on in Israel. But she says, you know what? God has looked upon me and shown me favor. I, you know, I was a nobody, and God came and sent me somebody 
who could really save me and deliver me by giving me this gift of not only knowing I have a relationship with God, but here's what some of you need to hear is that you know you have the relationship, but do you know how much God wants to make a difference through that relationship with him? Because if you know that, then you're putting together the fullness of what God has done for you, and his grace is this. God loves us just the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. See, selfishly, if we don't hear the call of grace on our lives, the word of God's call on our life is not only God saved me, but in Ephesians 2.10, listen up, he says, because we are his workmanship, and he has prepared good works for us to do. So not only does God's grace meet me in my need and lets me know I'm loved unconditionally, but there's work he wants to do in me and for me that for that work to be done, he's got to change me through that grace so that I am alive and have begin to have vision. I can magnify my story and say, I see what God is doing. Now I'm going to go back to Bo Brookley, who is a legendary in Winston-Salem for his ministry to people. He told this story on Friday morning. He says, you know, I was traveling a lot. He worked for Wachovia back when there was a Wachovia. God rest Wachovia. You know, it's dead and gone. Uh, But, (laughs) you know, um, he said, uh, I was flying a lot. And he said, and if you've ever had this experience, you'll know exactly what this is like. So everybody had boarded their flight. He wanted to get back to Winston-Salem, had to come through Greensboro. And so they're getting on a connecting flight. And they're they're told over the intercom, we're going to hold the plane for one person. We're holding the plane. Um, And because there wasn't the spirit of Christmas on the plane, everybody starts grumbling and complaining like, where's that one person? And then Bo said, people begin to complain because they're going to miss their connecting flights and they're getting more upset. And he said, just the, the agitation, the grumbling, the complaining, and they're holding the plane for one person. Okay? So finally, this one person walks on the plane. It's a woman in her camo uh, uniform. She walks on the plane. She gets right to that where you all can see her coming on. He said, immediately, this man sitting up in first class stood up and said, this is your seat. And then he walks to the back of the plane. And Bo said, the whole temperature, everything... Everybody wasn't like, why, where, who is this person? Why are we going to miss our connections? People were in awe of this simple generosity of this man who had a first-class seat. She walks on. She's a soldier. She's desperate to get home. She has a few days off. And he says, this is your seat. <laughs> so Bo says that after the flight, you know, he... He, he catches the woman. He wants to catch her before she makes her connection flight. He says, what did he say to you? And she says, well, he said to me, this is your seat, because nobody heard that. Nobody heard him say that. This is your seat. And then Bo turns around and he wants to find the guy and say, why did you do that? Why did you do that? And so he goes back and finds the guy who gave up his first, why did you do that? And he said, because it was the right thing to do. It was the right thing to do. You see, this Christmas, all of you are going to be given opportunities to say to someone else, 
I'll step aside because this is your gift. This is what God has for you. And I want to give it to you because, you see, Jesus saw you and me when we were lost and outside the realm of his kindness and mercy. Jesus left heaven so he might come to you and say, this is your seat. This is your place. I'm going to die in your place so you can have my place. So if you're not a follower of Jesus and know Jesus, it is as simple as this. Jesus says to you, I know you feel left, left over, I mean left, late, left over, but I'm going to come and I'm going to now give you a place, a seat at my table, at this table, so that you might know me. See, Jesus didn't go to the back of the plane. He got off the plane and went and died and purchased that ticket so you could stay in that seat. You could stay in his place. And see, that's the beauty of the gospel. And what Mary is getting swallowed up with here with excitement when she says, I magnify the Lord, is she says, notice what she says, because some of you feel this, and he looked on the humble estate of his servant. Some of you feel so humble by your circumstances and feel, you know, looked over or left behind or just feel like, I feel like life's just passing me by. But Jesus is looking on your humble estate, your situation, and says, I'm not passing you by. Today, today is the day. I'm going to remind you that I have a calling on your life. I have a place for you, and I have a purpose for you to serve me and to know me through giving your life away to others who sit in darkness and have no light. And then notice what Mary says. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Now, this majestic <laughs> uh, Savior who gives us a magnificent soul, he is mighty and he wants to do great things for us yet. Some of you, I know your stories, I know you can tell some great stories of what God's already done for you, but is it possible that you and I haven't even begun to realize how much he still is going to do for us? How many great things he wants to do for us? Because he sees us in our situations. He sees us for who we are, and there's a calling. We are his workmanship. I did this for those of you who have kids. It was in my pastoral note, but when it says we are his workmanship, the word literally means we are his masterpiece. Now, how does that feel? How does that answer for the hurt you carry in your soul when you realize God has made each one of us redeem people to be his masterpiece? Uh, so some of you are going, all right, now the pastor's getting a little wacky. Where's he going with this? All right, so here, let's go to the scripture. You are a chosen person. All right, you are chosen by God. Is that more masterpiece language than I ever could come up with. And then notice what God says. You are a royal priest to God. Oh my goodness, you could have just said I'm a priest and I'm, I'm a royal priest to God. I mean, using this language in that context, when Peter is saying these things, and he's quoting scripture from the Old Testament to do this, you're royalty, a royal priest. You're a royal woman who God has set apart to be a minister back to him and a minister to other people of the glory of the gospel. 
but you're also what? A holy nation. So if I was to go around to each one of you right now and look you in the eye and say, you are a holy woman. Would that just kind of go, whoo, that's so good, or you go, you're looking in the wrong direction, <laughs> you know? Because when we think about holiness, we think about a style of life, a way of life, the way we live our life, versus it's a gift. And what John Eldridge says so beautifully in his book, he says, holiness does not feel like pressure. It feels like relief. I've been given this gift of holiness. So sisters, you are holy to God, which literally means set apart. Now what does that mean, set apart? You fill in the blank to receive his love and give his love. Brothers, you are holy men. You are holy men. Wow. See, Mary is just, I mean, this song is so, she's just, she's going all out as a 13 or 14 year old writing a song. And one of the beautiful things about Luke and about Jesus is women get elevated in the Gospel of Luke. They have significance, value, and worth. I remember uh, a history professor uh, asking one time, he was not a Christian, I said, why did Christianity grow so fast um, during those first you know, 300 years? And he says, one of the reasons is the way the church treated women. Women felt they had value, they had worth, they were elevated. Notice what's going on right now. Here, who's the big hero of the Christmas story? It's Mary. <laughs> like, whoa, a little teenage girl is getting all this, whew. You know, and if I'm a young teenage girl, uh, like Lily or Georgia or Kate, I'm going, wow, Jesus can do something like that for me. He could do something that I could write a song like that or a poem or a story or paint something, whatever. And so we see this mighty Savior coming to do great things for us, amazing things for us, great things through us. And I, I just want to encourage all of you at North Cross, you've been, many of you have been here from the beginning and you've labored, and you've loved well, and you've waited, and look, I really believe the best days for North Cross are ahead, because God has been preparing you for the new pastor he's bringing to you, the new next stage. All right, so, you know, when I look at Jesus' life and his story, we get all excited about Christmas, but what about the time between Christmas and his first calling into ministry? where John the Baptist starts preaching and then Jesus is on. How many years did Jesus have to wait <laughs> before things took off? How many years? Anybody want to throw it out? How many? 30. Woo! You know, if you're young, like, that seems forever, you know? And now that I'm my age, I'll take that 30 back anytime, okay? I'm 71, all right? So 30 years Jesus had to wait I just want to encourage you, North Cross Church, it seems like it's been this long waiting season, praying, looking, searching, asking God, what are you doing? Where are you taking us? What are, why are we waiting? And could all this sort of, if you could, waiting stage, the stage where you've been in this embryonic development of something he really wants to pour out on this community. Wow. Wow. And so he wants to do great things because we've been set apart to do these great things because our God is holy. And in, to end with just the fact that Mary, after she talks about majesty, 
and might. She talks about mercy. You see, hesed creates attachment. When the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. Let me tell you about the best Christmas gift I've gotten so far. There'll be more to come my way. But after I saw and that scrapbook about my uncle, great uncle Joe, and what he sacrificed for our country, and the letters and love between my aunt and him, and my grandfather that I'd never met because he died when he was 46, um, is uh, I just, I felt connected to my family. So that night after I'd been with my sister Beth in Raleigh at the Archive Museum, I'm in a small group that I meet with on Wednesday nights, and we do a little gratitude exercise together. Okay, we do a little gratitude exercise together. And uh, it starts off like this. It starts off like, I am grateful for, okay? That's how it starts off. Everybody's doing a little journal exercise, and then we read to each other what we wrote. I am grateful for, and here's what I said, I am grateful for my family. Now, that might not sound like, you know, a big deal to you, but I have never said that in my life. I've never said to God or anybody else, I am grateful for my family. What a gift. And I, I just felt, again, the love of Jesus filling me with love for my family and healing me from all my bitterness, my disappointment, my anger, despair. I could just keep going and going and going about how much I grew up hating my family. I didn't hate them, but I hated what had happened to my family. I hated it. And it caused me to, first of all, detach from them. And it made it very hard for me to attach to God and to my own family. But I'm so grateful that Jesus attached himself to me through what he did for me at the cross so that I can be thankful for the family that he gave me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful this morning for the power and the wonder of what you did for Mary that you want to do for us. And we pray now, Jesus, even as we sing in response and as we come to the table, would you help us this morning to know that you're here for us. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.